Good morning. It's good to see you all today. Missed you this past week. I'm glad to be home. Glad to be here with you. Uh, we took a trip to Colorado, and uh, the week before we left, the temperatures in Colorado Springs were in the mid-60s, and I thought, man, that is as perfect as it can get. We went there, and the high, the whole week for us was 45. Um, it was cold. Second day we got there, it snowed. Um, so I, I sent this picture uh, that you see on the screen before you soon. Uh, yeah, that picture, I sent that to the, to the staff. We got eight inches of snow. And uh, I sent that to the staff, and Alan texted me back and said, were you prepared for this? And I literally looked down when I'm holding the phone, and there were two uh, grocery bags wrapped around my tennis shoes so I could walk in the, in the snow. And I said, no, we were not prepared. Um, so we had planned on doing all this hiking and having a real active vacation. Instead, what we ended up doing was eating and uh, playing a lot of cards. And that, that brought our family together. I learned that Colorado has some really good food. I learned that uh, your pastor's wife is a really good card player. She's scary good, really. I, you know, she'd go pro if it wasn't against our religion. So um, <laughs> the moral of the story is if you're playing cards with Carrie Berger, don't put any money on the table because you will lose your shirt and more. Um, but we had a good time. It was good to get home. And I, I just, last night I said to my family, isn't it good to know I needed the vacation. It was, it was a blessing, but I'm excited about being in church tomorrow, and that's the way it should be. So thank you for being that kind of church family. Um, we, are, we are talking about the things in our lives that get in the way of us doing the will of God, get in the way of us devoting ourselves completely to Him. All this year, we've been encouraging our members to pursue Christ like they've never done it before, like we've never chased Him before. We've given you four specific challenges. If you haven't started those challenges, our Bible reading plan and, and our, our, our method of praying for the lost and engaging in missions, uh, committing to generosity, there's information on a table that says all in right outside that door and to your right. So get started with us today. Help, help us reach our full potential as followers of Christ. Help us to become the people we're supposed to be. But in all of our lives, there are things that hold us back. And we talk about those as idols. If you've been with us through, through this series, this is the fourth Sunday in this series, you know by now that when I talk about idols, I'm not necessarily talking about statues we bow down to or religious artifacts or even other religions, although those certainly can get in the way of us serving the Lord. I am talking about things that you and I would consider good. Things that are blessings, things that God gave us to enjoy. And yet, what we've seen is that when we let those things become ultimate things, when we let those things take the place of God in our lives, and, and we look to those things to do for us what only God can do, not only do we miss out on the joy Jesus came to bring us, not only do we fail to become the people God created us to be, but in fact, those very blessings become curses to us. We don't even get to enjoy those. So the first week we talked about how if your family is your idol, if your family is your true God, you're going to wreck your family. You're going to place expectations on them they can't fulfill and it's going to destroy them. We talked about the idol of comfort. And if, if comfort is your idol, if your whole goal in life is to get to a place where you have all the things you want, where you've rid yourself of all the things you don't want, where you have perfect happiness and pleasure, not only will you miss out on God's will, you will cease to have pleasure in those things. You will become a very uncomfortable and possessive and, and greedy person. Last week, Alan did a great job of talking to us about the, the idolatry of wealth and success. Those are blessings. If you've reached a certain standard of your life or, or if you've gained a certain amount of financial security, good for you. 
But Alan talked about how we can, we can choose to look at those things through a gospel framework and it changes how we see them. So what you own doesn't own you. So that your goals in life become something other than reaching a certain status or a certain income. And if not, guess what happens? No matter how much you have, it'll never be enough. Today we're going to talk about the idol that I think is the most seductive in, in this culture, the one that's most celebrated by our culture. And that is the idolatry of romantic love and sex. And we, when you listen to songs, when you listen to popular music, when you watch movies, when you read novels, what is it always about? Almost always there's at least a love story tangentially involved. And often that is the high point. In fact, if you studied our culture from afar, if you were from another planet or another time and you studied 21st century America, you would determine that for an American person, the highest good, the highest goal is to meet your soulmate and fall in love with them. And that ultimate triumph is when you win that person's love and they become yours forever. And some have pointed out that since we're not as religious as a society as we used to be, that for a lot of people that is their religion. That is that tr the transcendent experience they're looking for is love, both physical and emotional, with the person that was perfectly designed for them. And I have to say that we as Christians are no better. In fact, we may be worse in this because we have, we talked about this the first week with the idolatry of family, we've, we've oversold the idea of Christian marriage. Marriage is a beautiful thing, as we're going to see, but we have oversold its usefulness. What, is the, what does the Bible actually say about uh, about marriage and sex. It says, first of all, that God created husband and wife. He created the sexual act. He created it as a gift. In fact, what is the first command in the whole Bible? Anyone know? Be fruitful and multiply. Somebody was about to say it. Yeah. Now, second question, what do you have to do? What did Adam and Eve have to do to fulfill that command of God? Yeah, some of you whispered it. You're like, I don't want to say it out loud. Because we're in church and I could get in trouble. But yes, God was commanding Adam and Eve to sleep together. God was commanding Adam and Eve to enjoy one another. This is a command of God. And I had somebody tell me once, a non-Christian who was sort of arguing with me about religion. He said, you Christians, you think that sex is just for having kids and you should never have sex if you're not trying to have kids. And I said, where do you find that in the Bible? He said, if you do find it in the Bible, don't tell my wife, okay? Because that's not what we believe. God, in fact, commands us as husbands, to enjoy our wives, to enjoy them, to drink in the pleasure we find in them for the rest of our lives. I could quote you the passages, but they're kind of steamy, and there are kids in the room, and I don't want to get calls this week from people who say, I've got Junior on the line, you explain it to him, okay? <laughs> but you can look them up. God actually compares the love of a husband for his wife, the way it's meant to be, he says, that sums up the love I have for you. Jesus, when he talked about the coming kingdom of God and what heaven's going to be like, he said, it's going to be like a wedding. It's going to be like a bride and a groom coming together. We're going to celebrate. It's a wonderful thing. So God is not an unromantic God. He created romantic love. He created sex, and it's a beautiful thing. But think about our culture and all the messages it sends. Think about our fairy tales. What are our fairy tales all about? And they lived happily ever after. Why? Because... Cinderella found her Prince Charming, and he placed that glass slipper on her feet. And it doesn't tell us about what happens after that. It doesn't tell us about how five years later, Prince Charming has love handles and ear hair. 
And Cinderella's got three kids, and they won't shut up, and one of them's just flushed the glass slipper down the toilet, and they can't find the plunger, and the fairy godmother's AWOL, and it's just a nightmare. No one talks about that part. You know, when I was 21 years old, I actually got married at 21. Can you believe that? I have a daughter who's 21 now. scares the snot out of me. When I was 21 years old, I didn't, I'd never heard the term soulmate, but I believed in it. I, I just knew. I, no human male has ever been more excited to be married than I was. I just knew I'd done everything the right way. The evangelical subculture of my day, this is the early 90s, had sold me the idea that if I married a good Christian girl and, and, and we did things the right way, we kept things in the proper order, if you know what I mean, that God sort of owed us and, and we would have a blissful and perfect marriage and everybody would look at us and say, how did you do it? And we'd say, well, you know, God gave it to us. And it, it would just glorify Him because we'd never argue and everything would be great. And, and it was so, I mean, I was so bought into this. The night before our wedding, I actually didn't sleep at all. And, and on the wedding day, I can remember standing in front of that, that chapel and all our families there and the door swings open and there stands Carrie on the arm of her dad. And as she's walking down the aisle, I feel this pain in my face and realize it's because I'm smiling so big, seriously. And I wish I could go back to August of 1992, or, or May of 1992. <laughs> August was fine too, but um, I wish I could go back and do it all over again. And you know why? Not because it was good, because it wasn't. Talk to her, she'll tell you. We agree, it was terrible. I'd like to go back because I was an idiot. Ask her, she'll agree to that too, right? We were so dumb. And we had no idea why this was so hard. It wasn't supposed to be hard. We thought it was going to be great. We thought it was going to be perfect. And it wasn't. And it was devastating. And it was a great lesson for me to learn that just because you marry the right person doesn't mean everything's going to work out fine. Just because you marry the right person doesn't mean all your dreams will come true. There's something more than that. There's something greater. So we're looking today at a guy somewhat like me because he was a love-struck young man on the eve of his wedding. And things went very differently than he thought they would. The guy's name is Jacob. We're in Genesis 29. Some of you know this story. If you don't, you're going to be surprised this kind of thing is in the Bible. Genesis 29, verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. I don't mean to be crude, but that's the Bible's way of saying she didn't just have gorgeous facial features, she had a wonderful body too. That is literally what it says. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you. He's talking to her dad here. Because that's the way it went in the ancient world. In the ancient world, marriage was a financial transaction. For most men, the way you got your daughter off your payroll, so to speak, was by raising enough money to offer a dowry, to induce some other family to say, okay, we'll take your daughter into our family as ours for that cost. But Laban, who by the way, you're going to find out if you don't know already, is one of the supreme jerks in the Bible. Laban had a beautiful daughter. He said, I don't have to pay somebody to take her. I can have a financial opportunity here. So get this, Jacob decides to outbid everybody. Jacob loved Rachel and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now I did some research. 
The median salary in the United States today is $60,000. Let's just assume that in Middle Eastern terms, 3,000 years ago, that's how much a shepherd made, which is what Jacob was volunteering to do for his future father-in-law. In other words, he's offering Laban $420,000 for the right to marry his daughter. Pretty good. It says... Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Now listen to this next line, ladies. You ready? So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Is that not the most romantic, stinking thing you've ever heard in your life? I mean, this is, this is Jacob saying to Rachel, you complete me, and Rachel saying, shut up, you had me at $420,000, Right? Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, this is at the end of the seven years, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. Now, Tim Keller has a whole chapter about this story in his book, uh, Counterfeit Gods. And he points out that verse 21 sounds kind of pedestrian in English, but if you read it in the Hebrew, you would see that it's very graphic what Jacob says to Laban. He essentially says, man, I cannot wait to sleep with your daughter. Now, what kind of fool says that? A fool in love. I did not say that to Richard Thacker, my future father-in-law. But I was thinking it. I promise you that. Now, here's the thing. Laban knew he had a sucker on his hands. Here's Jacob saying, man, I can't wait to sleep with your daughter. And Laban said, yeah, I got you, buddy. I've got you. I'm going to get something out of you. So the day of the wedding, you need to understand ancient wedding customs were different. They didn't actually have a wedding ceremony as such. They had a wedding feast. So you would come and you would eat and you would drink and you would dance and you would laugh and then you'd get back up and you'd eat and drink and dance and laugh again. And when everyone was in the highest possible spirits, the groom would come and take his bride by the hand and walk her into his tent and close the flap and everyone would cheer and go home. And that was the wedding. The high point was the consummation of the marriage bond. And so what Laban did was he took his older daughter, Leah, you know, the one he was going to have to support if he didn't get rid of her somehow. That's how it was seen in the ancient world. He put a veil on her as was customary. He sent her to Jacob. Jacob, who by this time, point had had a lot of wine and, and danced and laughed a whole lot, took who he thought was his bride into his chamber. And the next morning you can picture him rolling over, heavily hungover, I'm sure, to gaze into the face of his beloved and instead sees the wrong woman in his bed. Now, you can probably picture him get up and throw on his clothes and stomp down the way to the tent of his father-in-law and confront him and say, what have you done to me? You've deceived me. You can also probably see Laban stand there with this fake expression of, of shock on his face and say, but, but it is our custom around here that we give the older before the younger. I, I assumed you understood that, but uh, I'm sorry, my son, but you know, it's, it's not all bad news if you just serve out this week with Leah. You can have Rachel if you still want her. I just need seven more years. So now the cost of Rachel is $840,000. And verse 30 says that Jacob agreed and he worked those seven years. You know what it doesn't say in verse 30? It doesn't say, but they seemed a few days to him. You know why? Because now he's actually married. 
Now he's actually having to build a relationship. Now it's not a fantasy world. Now it's not this idea that, oh, if I, just, if I can just claim Rachel as my own, all my dreams will come true. Now he actually has to be a husband. And it's not what he thought it would be. But I want to leave Rachel and Jacob for just a moment and talk about the forgotten part of this story. There's a young woman in this story named Leah that we often overlook. Everybody else did. The only physical description we have of Leah is in verse 16. It says she had weak eyes. Most Bible scholars agree that doesn't refer to her eyesight, but instead her appearance, since it's contrasted with Rachel's beauty. And so they think maybe it means she was cross-eyed. Maybe it means she just wasn't easy on the eyes. Either way, here's a, here's a girl, and I say girl because young women were married at 14 or 15 at that, in that era. Here's a girl who's grown up her whole life in the shadow of her gorgeous baby sister. And now the worst possible thing has happened. Now she is married to the same man as that sister. Now she is the one who is forgotten, the one who is ignored. Keller calls her the girl nobody wanted. Ladies, can you imagine on the day after your wedding watching your new husband chew out your father because he gave him the wrong one? And that was the home Leah was entering. But Leah had one hope. You see, for a woman in those days, it was a terrible, terrible world to live in as a woman because you had two things you could offer the world. Your, your intelligence counted for nothing. Your, your skills were not uh, esteemed at all. But if you had physical beauty, that was good. If you were able to have children, that was even better. If you were able to have sons, then you were terrific. And as it turned out, as the years passed, Rachel seemed to be unable to have children. And so Leah has children, and she thinks to herself, this is my chance. Let's look at verse 30, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. I want you to notice what's happening here. We don't understand Hebrew. What the writer of Genesis is doing is he's giving us an explanation of each of the names of the sons of Leah. So let's look at the pattern that, uh, that arises here. Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. So what is Leah doing here? She is saying, maybe, maybe. I can win my husband's love through giving him sons. Maybe, maybe he'll walk down to the, to the village square, to the, to the city gates, and there the elders will stand, and he'll be followed by these strapping young boys, and the elders will look and say, Jacob, you're a lucky man, and he'll say, yes, I am, and it's because of that woman there, and he'll point to me, and then I'll know, then I'll have worth, then I'll know that I'm important, then I'll know that I matter. She's naming her boys names that reveal her heart. The goal of my life is to win the love of this man because without that love, I am nothing. And that's the problem with the idolatry of the soulmate. That's the problem with this idea that if I can just claim the person who fits my soul, then I'll have everything I've ever wanted. And we don't just see it in, in people in the ancient world. We don't just see it in people today who are starry-eyed romantics who get all teary-eyed from listening to romantic music on the radio. We see it, we see it in women, and there's so many, and perhaps you're one of them here today, women who put up with abuse, who put up with mistreatment, who, who yoke themselves to men who aren't worthy of them, hoping, hoping against hope, well, maybe this guy will marry me, and then I'll have value. 
because they think I just can't be anybody unless there's a man who marries me. And we see it in teenagers, teenagers who, even Christian teenagers who know the truth and yet they hear the message of our music, they hear the message of our movies, they hear the testimony of their classmates who say, hey, there's this transcendent experience you can have. Your parents don't need to know about it. Just, just, you, you just need to do this. And they think, well, obviously I'm missing something. And they go through with it and find out. There's devastation on the other side of that. When you do things in the wrong order, there's unintended consequences that change the course of your life, whether you want it to or not. We see it in people who engage in casual hookups because they've been told that sex is no big deal. It's just a physical act. It's no different than eating a meal in a restaurant. Why not? Why make such a big deal out of it? But we know that's not true, don't we? You want me to prove that it's not true? You want me to prove that, that sex is something different? Think about this. If you have a friend and you find out that your friend was attacked last night on the street and was beaten up, you're going to be concerned for your friend. You're going to go visit them and you're going to make sure they're okay. But if you find out that your friend wasn't just beaten up, but they were raped, that's something completely different, isn't it? But why? Because there's something about the sexual act. God created it in such a way. It's more than just a physical act. It's not just like eating. It's not just like anything else. When it's taken by force, that is something that should never happen. That is something that is a crime against someone's soul. And when we give it away to other people thinking, well, this will just be a fun experience and I can move on, we're deceiving ourselves. Because we're not just giving away something physical, we're giving away something emotional, something deep down in our souls that we can't reclaim. And then we see it also in people who've bought into the, to the lie of our culture that says that whoever you're attracted to, you can have that person. You should have that person. Anybody who tries to stop you is wrong. Doesn't matter what uh, kinds of mores have guided society for centuries. Doesn't matter what the Bible says. You go for whatever you're attracted to, whoever you're attracted to. That's what's most important. And I remember, well, first of all, I mean... <laughs> It's been 50 years since the sexual revolution convinced society that uh, the old mores were gone and we should, just, we should just follow our instincts. Are we actually happier because of it? Are we happier now than we were 50 years ago? Are our families stronger? Or is there less discouragement, loneliness, depression, devastation, addiction, suicide? Of course not. I remember I hadn't been a preacher very long and there was a, a family who had been part of our church. Well, they weren't members, but they were part of our church, and, and this was one of those families, if you saw them in a restaurant or you saw them sitting in church, you'd say, wow, they've got it. They've got it all figured out. They have the life. And then the wife found out that the husband was having an affair with a lady he knew at work. And against all the odds, in spite of this just dagger to her heart, she was willing to forgive. She was willing to work things out. But of course, he had to end that relationship. And I remember him sitting in my office talking to me about it. And, you know, this is a guy who was tall, athletic, just a, a guy who had, he was on the ball in every way. And yet sitting in my office, he looked completely defeated. He, he looked like a person who was more ashamed of himself than anything you can describe. He hated what he had done. He hated what he'd done to his family. And he was terrified of losing them. And I said to him, listen, and this was, this was new for me. I wasn't a bold person. I'm still not as bold as I should be. But the Lord just gave me the words. I picked up the, the receiver of my telephone, and I held it out, and I said, tell me the number. I'll dial it. You can call that woman right now, and I'll be your witness that you have broken things off with her right here. And he looked me in the eyes, and he said, 
yeah, but this is something I need to do myself. I'm going to do it when I get home, but I need to do it myself. And like a fool, I believed him. Like a fool, I let him walk out the door. And he didn't call. And he didn't break it off. At least not then. And it occurred to me, this guy hated what he was doing. He was terrified of what was going to happen, and yet he couldn't stop. And I thought to myself, he's just like an addict. He's no different than a junkie who needs a hit. And I thought, of all those TV shows and movies and songs and novels that make forbidden love look like the most exciting and fulfilling thing in the world, and I thought, what a lie that is. See, the, the idol of romantic love and sex is a liar. And, and eventually... Leah figured that out. That's the good news of this story. Because look at verse 35. And she conceived again and bore a son. And she said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. See, finally she says, this is Leah saying, I'm never going to win the love of this man. And I'm just going to stop trying. I'm not going to keep banging my head against a wall. Instead, I'm just going to praise the Lord. I'm just going to focus on Him because He won't let me down. Some years later, here's Jacob uh, blessing his sons. Rachel is dead by now. She managed to have two sons. And on the second one, when Benjamin was born, she died in childbirth. Leah, we think, is probably still around. Jacob is on his deathbed. He's blessing his 12 sons. His 12 boys, the future patriarchs of Israel, stand around the bedside of old Jacob. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's foretelling what's going to happen to each son and what's going to happen to their families. And he points to one of his boys and he says, you're going to be the one. You're the salvation of Israel. You're the, from your line will come the kings of our people. From your line will come the salvation of our world, the Messiah. And it's not Reuben, his firstborn, which is what we expect. And it's not, it's not Joseph or Benjamin, the sons of Rachel, the ones he actually liked the most. No, it's Judah. It's the lion's cub, the son of Leah, the, the forgotten wife. Our salvation comes through her, and it's just a reminder that Leah wasn't loved by her husband, but she was loved by God. That's who he chose. He's the lover of the unlovable. He's the one who remembers the forgotten one. He looked at Leah and said, nobody wants her? I want her. That's the kind of God he is. And you know, I don't have a lot in common with these people. I have this in common with Jacob. I was once a young man who was convinced he'd found his soulmate. And in fact, I found someone who looked like Rachel, but better than that, had the soul of Mary Magdalene. So I knew I was on the right track. But I have this in common with Leah. There came a day, and it wasn't that far into my marriage, thankfully I was still very young, when I realized, you know, marriage isn't intended to make all my dreams come true. And no person I could marry, no matter how wonderful, could ever settle things in my heart and set me on the right course and solve all my problems. I was placing expectations on my wife that only God could fulfill. And it really did happen. I didn't connect it to the story of Leah at the time, but it really did happen that I said to God, Lord, I, all I have now is you. I, I've, I've lost hope in everything else. I've just got to pursue you. And I'd been a Christian. I was 22 by that time. I'd been a Christian since I was nine. thought I was a pretty good one. But that was the first time in my life when I really gave my whole self to following Jesus and knowing him better. Finally, I wasn't just going to church hoping God would bless me. I wasn't just obeying His commands hoping He'd give me what I wanted. Now, I was just saying, Lord, I just want to know You. 
And I found out something interesting, something beautiful. That when you set everything else aside and say, I'm just going to serve God, I'm just going to pursue Him with my whole heart, with nothing held back, you won't be disappointed because you meet Him there and you find a joy and you find a purpose and you find an identity you never knew you could have. And I started out praying, Lord, change me and make me the kind of person I need to be to make our marriage work. But then that prayer turned into, over time, it turned into, Lord, just make me the person you want me to be. And that changed everything for me. And it can change everything for you. So if you're not married today, I want to say this to you. If you're not married today, including all the teenagers, including all the young adults, including people who are divorced, people who are widowed, if you're not married here today, let me just say, sex is a gift from God. Marriage is a beautiful thing. If you get to have those things with someone who captivates you emotionally and physically like I do, hallelujah, that's a gift that I wouldn't trade for all the money in the world. But you don't have to have that to be happy. You don't have to have that to live of a complete and fulfilled life. Right now, your singleness is a gift from God. Paul calls it that in 1 Corinthians 7. So don't waste it. Don't waste it pining away for some person to come along, some Mr. or Ms. Wright, some soulmate who doesn't exist. Don't waste it chasing after that person. Spend this time devoting yourself to Christ like never before. And volunteer for ministry in ways that married guys like me can't. And if you do get married someday, don't marry somebody just because, oh, wow, that's a good-looking person. Because guess what? The day you marry that person is the best they are ever going to (laughs) look. Ladies, remember what I said about love handles and ear hair? It's real. It's coming. Don't marry somebody because you're afraid you're going to be alone, because you won't be alone. Don't marry somebody because you think they're going to make you happy. Because i got news for you. If you're not happy in Christ before you meet them, that person will not make you happy. In fact, you'll make them miserable. Don't drag them into your misery. I know that sounds harsh, but it's real. Instead, if you do marry, marry somebody who you know they bring out what's best in you. They inspire you to serve God with greater diligence and greater fervency. They, they are strong in ways that you're weak. You marry somebody who you look at and you say, this is a person who's not perfect, but, but they have the same passion I do. And together, we two as partners will follow Christ together. And in the meantime, in the meantime, I want to ask you single people to do something you may think is crazy, but I, I'm challenging you to do this because I love you. Pray to God and say, Lord, I don't have to meet Mr. or Ms. Wright. I don't have to find anybody. Even if I never find that person, if I never fall in love, you're enough for me. You are enough for me. And Lord, help me to seek after you. Whether I'm married or single, help me always to find my joy, my comfort, my my purpose, my everything in you. Can you do that? Will you do that? And for all you married people, listen, in spite of everything I've said so far, there really is one person in this world God has picked out for you to love with your whole heart, and that is the person you are currently married to. And it is no one else. I don't, you could fill a library with stuff I don't know about God, but this much I do know about God. There has never been a married person on earth that God looked at and said, yeah, I got somebody better for you. Never. You love that person. Love them with your whole heart. And I know, I know some of you would say, Jeff, you don't understand the person I'm married to. This is impossible. And I I know, if you came and told me your story, I'm sure it would make my story and and Carrie's story and our, our story just look like a piece of cake. But I can tell you this. 
Thursday, we celebrated 27 years together. We were in Colorado Springs. We ate at an Italian food place. We ate way too much. And then we topped it off with not one but two pieces of cake because that's how we roll in the burger house. And, I, and my kids were there, and it was awesome. And, and I could look around, and I, could, I didn't have to pretend to be happy. I didn't have to pretend to celebrate. I didn't have to pretend to be in love because it's real. After 27 years, it's better now than it's ever been. And it's not because... She's my sunrise and sunset, my everything that my life depends on her. I couldn't live without her. That's not true. And it's not because I'm the love of her life, because I'm not. She loves Jesus more than me, and that's why it works. In fact, when we do have trouble, when we do have difficulties, which thank God doesn't happen often anymore, but when we do, it's always because we've let the God of the expectation of the perfect marriage creep in and tell us, well, I deserve more than this, and well, you should treat me this way, instead of just sitting back and saying, hey, Christ is my fulfillment. This person's not perfect, never will be. So if you're married, offer your expectations up to the Lord. Say, Lord, I just repent of all the, the ways that I wish I could change my spouse. I just want to give those to you and, and just stop asking you to change them. And Lord, just change me. Take me and make me the person you want me to be. Whether they ever change or not, whether the things between us get better or not, I want to be the person you made me to be. I want to find my everything in you. Do you have the courage to do that? Do you have the faith to do that? It's going to make all the difference for you. And you may say, well, why should I do that? I, I, how do I know that's going to work? Here's how. Because Jesus was the God of the universe. He had all the power that exists. He, he dwelt in unapproachable light. He had so much beauty about him that millions of angels adored him 24-7. And he gave all of that up to become the man nobody wanted. Despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted from grief, acquainted with grief like one from whom we hide our faces. We esteemed him not. And he laid down his life for us so that by his wounds we could be healed. And there has never been and there will never be anyone who loves you that way. And think about it. If there's a God in heaven who has infinite power and all knowledge who loves you that much, when you give yourself completely to that God, is there any possibility that will be disappointing? No. Logically speaking, there is no way. He is the one who loves you. He is the love of your life. He is your true soulmate. Don't miss him looking for someone else. 